Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss or discuss further the Developing Families Center here in Washington, D.C., an organization that works to promote the health and wellness of low-income families. My March 5th interview with Dr. Ruth Lubick discussed one element of the DFC's work. Again, that was on the subject of midwifery uh, or the work of the Family Health and Birth Center specifically and its nurse midwives. To discuss the balance of the DFC's programming, uh, here with me today is the DFC's president and CEO, Dr. Linda Randolph. Welcome, Linda. Thank you. Let me provide some uh, background on uh, Dr. Randolph's career. Dr. Linda Randolph is a public health pediatrician with over 30 years of experience serving in federal, state, and local governments, academia, private philanthropy, and not-for-profit organizations. Dr. Randolph is a native Washingtonian and is known for her work to eliminate in eliminating disparities, racial and ethnic, in health and building upon the strengths of families and communities to affect health policy. Dr. Randolph was elected to the Institute of Medicine in 2008. She's a recipient of numerous awards in the field of maternal and child health, including the American Public Health Association's 2001 Martha May Elliott Award. Most recently, last month, Dr. Randolph and Dr. Lubick co-presented at the Association of Maternal and Child Health Programs John C. McQueen Memorial Lecture. Dr. Randolph earned her MD from the Howard University College of Medicine and her Master's in Public Health from the University of California at Berkeley. So with that as background and introduction, uh, Dr. Randolph, let's begin. My first question may seem a bit naive, but based on your 30 years uh, plus of experience, let me ask you this. What do you think accounts for worse maternal and child health outcomes among minority populations? Well, they're multifactorial, but I think that we've come to understand that a significant underpinning of the disparity has to do with really the lives of the families and the lives particularly of the mothers prior to birth and subsequently, and perhaps even the lives of the current mothers' mothers. So we're beginning to look and see that there is a trajectory. Um, Some call it a life course trajectory that helps to um, both provide um, what I'll call protective factors, but also risk factors. And it's the balancing of those two or the inequities of the balancing of those two, particularly for minority communities, that Uh, people are coming to understand more about. And that can be anything from um, access to certain resources, whether it's income, whether it's health care, whether it's preventive services, whether it's the lifestyle in the communities. Um, And a lot of work now is being done around what's called um, toxic stress or chronic stress which seems to have an inordinate impact on minority populations. But to pick up on part of your answer, I thought was interesting, is that it's an intergenerational problem. Yes. Or issue as well. Yes. And one of the things that 
that we've come to understand is that you have to look at the health of the woman who is pregnant now, but you also need to look at the health of that woman's mother when she was pregnant and the implications of that in terms of what protective factors or risk factors were prevalent at the time of the current mother's birth. And so <clears throat> it means that you do have to have this intergenerational approach, and it means that there's no quick fix necessarily for much of this, but it does behoove us then to look at things that, for example, myself as a pediatrician might be focused more on the child, but I recognize that that child's health depends on that mother's health and actually depends on that grandmother's health. And so it, it talks, we're then looking at what are the responsibilities of all the stakeholders in making sure that the risk factors are addressed and making sure that, that we're strengthening the protective factors. Okay, thank you. This uh, is a little bit uh, related, but a little bit finer tuned, uh, this question. African American and West Indians have worse birth outcomes than women in their native countries, and African Americans, regardless of their income, have worse comparative birth, income, uh, birth outcomes. So can you say further, what explains, particularly the issue as it relates to um, regardless of income, well, minorities have yeah, worse birth outcomes? Right. I think it's it's the African, uh, it's the um, West Indian women in their native countries have relatively comparable outcomes to white women here in the U.S. It's when they come to the U.S. and the <clears throat> the the daughters of those women in the U.S. have infants that, in fact, they have worse outcomes. We also know that, as you, as you indicated, that African-American women, regardless of their income, have poorer outcomes, particularly as it relates to low birth weight. Now, initially, there were some who would have postulated that this was genetic. And in fact, what we're beginning to really understand now is that living in the United States is a stressful environment to be living in for many people, particularly um, ethnic minorities. And we're beginning to understand that chronic stress has a significant burden on the body's physiologic state, mental state, etc. So people are looking at now uh, what is called um, toxic stress, chronic stress. They're looking at the biology of it. They're looking at the, how that is translated in terms of the lives of individuals on a regular basis. And that stress can be anything from, as I said earlier, from accessing resources on the one hand for perhaps a low-income individual 
and looking at a more affluent African-American, one recognizes that the stresses of racism in the work environment, in the professional environment, and so forth, also have a significant effect. This is something that people are just beginning to study and beginning to understand what that stress is all about and what toll it may have in terms of birth outcomes. And, and this point is similar to, I should note, uh, the same point Dr. Stephen Wolf made, who is the chair of the panel of the Institute of Medicine that wrote the Shorter Lives, Poor Health document, which found similarly that uh, it's the environment that affects uh, health status, and that's why they titled their report Shorter Lives, Poor Health. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's go to um, the Developing Family Center. Um, again, we discussed... I discussed with Dr. Ruth Lubick one aspect thereof, that's the midwifery work done by the Family Health and Birth Center, but can you describe for me what's the other activities that the Developing Family Center performs or programs that they provide? Okay. Well, first of all, um, even in the, in the birth center, this birth center here is somewhat different from other birth centers in the country because it has a strong pediatric focus. And so it's a nurse-driven model uh, with pediatric nurse practitioners and family nurse practitioners that are looking at the whole family. And so that emphasis of before birth, during birth, after birth, and then the child's development from then on is something that is a continuum of care. And we look at the DFC model as a continuum of care model. So that's one aspect that's, that's different. Should be noted, certainly. That should yes. be noted. The other is, of course, um, I don't know whether Ruth mentioned the breastfeeding peer counselors. No, she did not, so please. Okay. The breastfeeding peer counselors are an integral part of the Family Health and Birth Center. These are individuals who have utilized the services here at the Developing Family Center. In fact, many of them have utilized the range of services here and have uh, been um, able to enhance their skills to work in a peer relationship with other women who are coming for services, providing support and providing guidance and doing it in a way that's like a team approach. So they're working with the midwife, with the nurse practitioner, um, <clears throat> with the doulas who may be also supporting labor. And we know from a pediatric standpoint that breastfeeding is what's called, uh, Kellogg has just coined this term, first food. And that this is the baby's first food and the baby's best first food and that it provides certain immunologic benefits to the infant, but increasingly now the studies are showing that it has health benefits for the mother as well. So that component uh, is one that we have stressed significantly because African American women are least likely to breastfeed. And so one of the things, we've had a tremendous increase in terms of African American women here breastfeeding. The other <clears throat> components um, we have at one end of the building, 
moms delivering with their families. And at the other end of the building is an infantile child development center from six weeks to three years of age. And um, this is um, essentially an early Head Start site. Um, and <clears throat> basically what it is is continuing the continuum and saying that uh, it doesn't stop at birth. You need to have those linkages. And if, in fact, you want to impact that child's healthy growth and development beyond the first year of life and influence their ability to learn and to grow, then you um, build in the relationship with early, early childhood education. Um, um, James Hecklin, who is a Nobel laureate, has written, uh, economist, has written extensively on why there should be um, more investment in these very early years in terms of early childhood education because of the long-term benefits, the skills that the children get that are more likely to have them ready to learn. Okay. Since you did use the phrase early head start and we did speak previously, I'll ask you this question. Um, and this is this increasingly topical question about so-called Head Start Fade. Some research has shown that, particularly for Head Start students, meaning four-year-olds, um, that the benefit thereof fades, therefore the name Head Start Fade, by the first or second grade. Uh, the study for Head Start students who start at age three, uh, the benefits may persist longer. For example, studies show for the three-year-olds, as they age, there's less hyperactivity more positive parental relationships, etc. Um, so based on my study, on balance, the research is favorable. However, in this uh, budget austerity uh, moment we're in, there are arguments that the program isn't um, effective and, and should therefore be cut. Um, since you're invested in do this, I'm certainly interested in your uh, well, David, I, I have to tell you, uh, since uh, my professional experience goes back to actually being a part of Head Start in the 1970s uh, as the medical director of uh, Head Start nationally, um, I've heard these uh, so-called uh, arguments since the 1970s and actually before the White Westinghouse study um, early on um, talked about the fading of the gains that were made by the time uh, a child was in the third grade or something like that. Well, first of all, um, my first comment is, why is that an indictment of Head Start? Why isn't that an indictment of the school system that picks up the kids that have come to them ready and eager and with all of at their developmental points and now all of a sudden, it's it's Head Start's fault, not the school system. That fault. that is that people have made that argument that it's that the, the students are more prepared to learn, but they go to underperforming schools, and it's not the Head Start program. It's actually, for your well, point, it's the school program. <laughs> that's, yes, that's one of them. The other thing I think is is that um, 
if you look at child development on a continuum, you recognize that um, where there are gaps, there's likely to be relapse. So transition of children throughout childhood um, are times wherein often, oftentimes systems fail the kids and the families. And there's not, you know, my thing, theme is continuity, that you've got to continue to make the investments, continue to provide the supports, continue to do something which we call in, <clears throat> in the early childhood field scaffolding. You know, when a building is going up, there's scaffolds up. And that's to kind of protect the workers who are working on the building and also to protect the building. Well, you know, for vulnerable populations, you need to develop systems of care that have scaffolding as a part of the way in which they organize uh, service delivery. It also means that you have to have individuals who have the skills necessary. And I guess one of the things that perhaps has been found in, <clears throat> in some of the studies is that all Head Starts are not alike. And therefore, those Head Start programs that have adequately trained and skilled professionals who are working with the children and the families do very well. The kid, children do very well. Perhaps when they're not as skilled, well, what does that say? That says, well, there's a resource equation in terms of the ability of individuals who oftentimes start out as parents. And a Head Start is built on this notion of parent involvement. So parents volunteer, they get involved, and some of them may serve as teacher aides, and then they may begin to move up the ladder, and you're enhancing their training and their skills and so forth. But you also have lead teachers who have um, the bona fide credentials and so forth to work with very young children. And as we've gotten more sophisticated in terms of working with younger children, we've begun to understand what those skill sets are of the teachers and <clears throat> what needs to be present. Okay, thank you. Interesting, per your use of the word scaffolding and protection in my discussion with Ruth, she noted the French program, and they actually, in the title of their programming, they actually use the word yeah. protection of women and children. So interesting. Let me, we have time for, I think, uh, a last question. As a general question, what's your sense of sort of receptivity and understanding of this? And again, use the word continuity of care and trying to avoid gaps in care for um, pre, peri, and postnatal, and then early child development. What's, what's your understanding of the reception of the importance thereof? I mentioned in the Ruth um, interview that the federal government has now started the Strong Start program uh, by way of studying and looking at how can we improve both birth outcomes and early development. But again, what's, you've been at this for a long while. What's, we'd be lost if we, if I, I'd be remiss rather if I didn't ask. Well, I think um, we're at a critical point in time where there is 
um, both more knowledge available as well as um, an understanding of development, child development particularly, and that the, um, the opportunities are available to kind of knit these fragmented funding sources and efforts at the community level together in, a, in, in more of a holistic approach to children and families. And <clears throat> I think that for us, um, and, I, and I go back to sort of my own um, training experience, I actually trained as a fellow in neonatal intensive care, okay? And I always tell the story that uh, when I finished my fellowship, I told my chief of service that my mission in life was to put him out of business, or at least to recognize that much more could be done on the prevention end. Prevention is beginning to, to you know, people used to say, I can remember a, a book that came out many, many years ago about uh, prevention, and you know, the issue is prevention better than cure. And one could go down that road and say, well, uh, you can't prevent everything. Well, you possibly can't, but we could do a much better job mm -hmm. in prevention. So what we're finding is that when you get to the field of prevention, you cross all the domains. There's prevention in the field of mental health. There's prevention in substance abuse. There's prevention in, in um, chronic disease and so forth. When you get to the root causes, then you realize that many of the root causes are similar across the spectrum. And if you're focusing on root causes and prevention, then you are more likely to have a success at the other end. Meaning fewer newborns in NICU. <laughs> that, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> With that, I think we're at our time boundary. So, Linda, we're genuinely very appreciative. It was a pleasure. Appreciate your comments. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, David. It was a pleasure.